so good to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me to come and share with you from God's Word. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 18 this morning, and so while you're turning to that in your Bible or on your device, um, I just want to tell you about one of the greatest examples of fatherhood that I ever knew. My wife's father, he was physically short, but he stood head and shoulders above many of the men I'd met prior to, to meeting him. He was a man of sincere integrity, hard work, great humor. He had facial hair before it was cool. Uh, not much, just a well-trimmed mustache. Uh, he declared was virgin timber. He said his upper lip had never been shaved clean. In his prime, he was a bundle of energy, although I was several inches taller than he. Uh, I sometimes had to hurry to keep up with him because he just was energetic, a fast walker, and he was also a fast thinker. He was quick-witted. He was a master of the pun, and he could find something funny in almost every situation. My wife declares that her parents fell in love with me before she did. Well, it's true that I met them before I met her, and we're reasonably sure that they were gently plotting ways to help us discover each other, and they succeeded. When I became acquainted with the family, I saw firsthand what a wonderful uh, husband and father he was. I had never seen anyone so attentive to the women in his life. His wife, um, my wife, Carol, and her sister, Joanne. And uh, in fact, he was such a wonderful husband and father that I was intimidated. And after Carol and I were engaged and with our wedding approaching, I developed a case of the proverbial cold feet. And uh, I remember sitting in the swing on her front porch and confessing to her that I was having second thoughts. And she was patient with my confusion, and I finally confessed that as much as I loved and respected and admired her father, I doubted that I could ever be like him. And she gave the perfect response. She said, well, I don't want a father, I want a husband. Well, I was up for that, so... Um, he had an unassuming name. His name was Joe Brown, but he was anything but ordinary. He was a great lover of people. And sometimes I would find him studying for his sermons late at night because he could study in the wee hours, but he wanted to be with people during the day, and that was his style. And most importantly, from my standpoint, of course, he always had time for me. And so now I'm thinking about him on this Father's Day weekend. Well, in Genesis chapter 18, we come across uh, uh, a great father as well, and by the name of Abraham. And let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by, but a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. You realize how long those men had to wait for that meal? I mean, you got to start from scratch on baking the bread and 
butchering the calf and getting that veal ready to eat, you know? Well, he says, he then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. They're in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, Yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And so we read in that passage uh, this outstanding example of fatherhood. Uh, Abraham had some unique experiences in parenting. We can't go into all of those this morning, but he was a man who lived close to God. And in this passage, I see four ideas describing his role as a father. And uh, the first one is uh, has to do with the father's position. The Lord says, for I have chosen him. He chose him for this unique position. And, and what did that mean? Well, for one thing, he used to be close to God. Uh, three men came to the tent. And one was God who had taken on human appearance. Uh, God is uh, pictured here as wondering whether or not to take Abraham into his confidence about the plans he has for Sodom and Gomorrah, two wicked cities. But God decided to do so because he knew Abraham would become a great nation and that he would also direct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. Now imagine uh, being a person in whom God can confide. That was Abraham's position. But what about your position? We're not leading a nation, but we are leading our families. And that's a tremendously important position. It uh, demands uh, inner character, strength, providing leadership and example. I read somewhere about a great tree that fell in Colorado. It had been a sapling when Columbus uh, discovered America. It had been struck by lightning 14 times. It had survived storms and earthquakes and mudslides, but in the end, tiny beetles killed it. They bored under the bark, dug into the heart, ate away the fibers of that great tree, and toppled the king of the forest. It just reminds us of how strong we must be on the inside, and how we must, by God's help, develop character, because this position that we hold, we need to be close to God, one who knows God, loves God, walks with God, is open to God. And then um, Abraham needed to be close to his wife as well, and so do we, close to your spouse. Charlie Shedd tells about a couple named Bob and Helen. Uh, somebody had asked the secret of their marriage joys because they 
have been married a long time and were obviously a great example of love and devotion. And he wondered what their secret was. And he said, well, I have to tell you, Bob said, I, it hasn't always been this way. He said, early in our marriage, we frankly wondered whether or not we would make it. And he said, I read about this somewhere and we decided to try it. We wrote down, each of us made a list. And Bob said, I wrote down everything I did not like about Helen. And then she made a list of everything she didn't like about me. And then we went out in the backyard where we had a burn barrel. And we put those two lists in the barrel and burned them. And we watched the smoke rise. And we stood there with our arms around each other, which we hadn't done for a while. And he said, then we went back in the house and we made two more lists. He said, I made a list of everything I appreciated about Helen. And she made a list of everything she appreciated about me. And then he said, you know what we did with those lists? He said, they're just handwritten lists, but we framed them. We put them in maple frames, and he invited uh, Charlie to go back to their bedroom, and he said, see here, we put them on the wall in our bedroom. And he said, we promised each other we'd read those every day. So I read the list of what I like about Helen, and she reads the list of what she likes about me, and he said, but now we've memorized the lists. But he said, I look at, the, that, at her list of what she likes about me, and I try to... I try to live up to that. And I look at the list of what I liked about her and I try to build on that. And so he said, that's, that's how we've managed to, to succeed in our love and our marriage. Charlie Shedd told another story about a man with whom he hunted ducks. And he said there were three really good reasons why he hunted with this man. For one thing, the man was a member of the best duck lease on the river and Charlie wasn't, so that was an advantage. The second reason was that uh, this man happened to be the chairman of the board of the church that Charlie pastored, and so they could kind of talk business to and fro. Third reason wasn't so good. He said this man and his wife had a terrible marriage, and he said, I was hoping that maybe if I spent some time with them, we could work on it, and we could salvage the marriage. In the end, it didn't work. The marriage fell apart. They got a divorce. And he said, uh, but he... He enjoyed spending time with this man, and this man would, would uh, he had a thing about guns, and he would, especially a thing about Charlie's guns, and he got after him, because Charlie had some scratches on the stock of his gun, and he had some, some terrible thing called pitting in the barrel of his gun, and the man said it was because when you get home from your hunt, you got to clean it right away, and he just really had a thing about guns. Charlie said, in a way, it was kind of sad. He said he would see him there in his den, and he had this big gun case, and they smelled of banana oil, and it was beautiful, and he said he would see the, the stuffed antelope and the pheasants and, and this white rug made of the hide of a, of a mountain goat, and he would talk about his guns. And uh, the man would say things like, you know, I just can't understand how anybody would spend all that money on a gun and then let it go to pot. Well, Charlie said, I thought of this one day, too late. You know how it is, you think of the right thing to say long after you wish you had said it. He said, I thought of this. I thought of saying to that man, I wish you'd think about how much it cost you to get your wife. Think about the courtship, the dates, the movies, the dinners, and then after you were married, besides the wedding costs, all the other expenses, the 
clothes she wore, the food she ate, the medicine she took. He said it would be a tidy little sum. And I would like to turn his argument back upon himself and say, I don't understand how a man could invest so much in a marriage and then let it go to pot. Well, it happens, of course, which is why God wants us to be close to him, and close to our spouses. But then we not only see a father's uh, uh, position, but we see in this passage a father's purpose. Uh, it says in verse 19, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And that's our purpose, to do the best we can to direct our families in the way of the Lord. Uh, two men were talking, and one of them said that his son had gone off the deep end. He said, I don't know what we did wrong. He said, we tried to teach him uh, not to smoke and not to drink and not to swear and not to steal. And his friend said, well, maybe that's the problem. You didn't train him up in the way he should go. You trained him up in the way he should not go. Well, we need a balance, don't we? There is both positive and negative, of course, in our lives. And um, I, I just hope you're not tempted to follow Mark Twain's philosophy. Mark Twain said, when a boy turns 13, put him in a barrel and feed him through a knot hole. When he turns 16, plug up the hole. I don't think that would work because I've never seen a teenager yet that could get enough to eat through a knot hole in a barrel. But, and I hope you're not tempted to follow Mark Twain's advice. On the other hand, Michael Davies uh, had uh, proposed ten commandments for parents, and I want to share those with you this morning. The first one is, thou shalt start with thyself, because, of course, example is more important than precept. Doing speaks louder than talking. A poet said, we may talk but never teach until we practice what we preach. Which kind of brings us back to that first point, our position with God, helping us to be close to Him, close to our spouses, being examples. And then the, uh, commandment number two, thou shalt be more concerned about relationships than rules. Rules work best, somebody said, when they are few and basic. Rebellion over rules usually results because of alienation from persons. If a child knows he's loved and respected as a person, uh, he or she is less likely to rebel against the ethical standards. You know, the prodigal son broke all the rules. He went out and wasted everything that his father had given him and broke all the rules. But when he returned, what did the father do? He ran to him, embraced him. Why? Because the relationship was more important than the rules. And then number three, thou shalt impart the faith. We just have to remember as parents that church and Sunday school can never take the place of parents as a child's first guide. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're familiar with these uh, well-known words, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Life is a great teacher. The things that happen to us if we apply them, the lessons that we can learn through life are very valuable. I mean, what better time to talk about loving your enemies than when Johnny comes home with a black eye, right? Now, that's not to excuse bullying, of course not, but life does provide teachable moments. And then number four, thou shalt learn to listen. Communication involves listening as well as speaking. Communication will be lacking as long as we do all the talking. Body language. Even your body language should say, what you have to say is important to me. Number five, thou shalt spend time with thy children. 
You see, while we're working hard to give them all the things that money can buy, don't fail to provide them with the things that money can't buy. Like love and attention and the gift of yourself. The gift of yourself and your time are worth more than all the gifts you could give for Christmases and birthdays. Commandment number six, thou shalt acknowledge thy faults as a parent. You ever do something dumb as a parent? Ever jump to conclusions? Ever say the wrong thing when you're tired and irritable? We just need to admit when we make mistakes. Everybody makes them. I heard about one fellow who wrote to the company from which he had ordered something through the mail. He said, I built a birdhouse according to your plans. Not only is it too big, it keeps blowing out of the tree. The company wrote back and said, we're really sorry we accidentally sent you the sailboat blueprint. If you think you're unhappy, you should see the guy who came in last in the Yacht Club Regatta in a leaky birdhouse. That's a silly story, isn't it? But it reminds us we all make mistakes. And uh, we just need to acknowledge them. Number seven, thou shalt keep thy sense of humor. Humor is one of God's good natural gifts. Cultivate it. I don't mean sarcasm. Sarcasm can ruin a good relationship. But humor lightens the load. John Wesley said, sour godliness is the devil's religion. So we don't want to be sour. You know, Jesus had a sense of humor. We're so familiar with his sayings and, and his teachings that sometimes we forget if you happen to be in the audience the first time anybody ever heard that, I think it would strike you as funny. Oh, he said to his Pharisees, they strain out a net and swallow a camel. That's funny, actually. I mean, we're, we're used to hearing that, you know. But strain out a gnat, somebody who's so conscientious, they try to get the gnat out of their food and then turn around and swallow a camel. It's an exaggeration. Nobody could do that. But he got his point across through that humorous exaggeration. And number eight, thou shalt treat thy children equally. Now that's, you might question that one because I don't mean exactly the same way when I say equally because your children don't have the same personalities and needs, but each of them is of equal worth and that worth needs to be respected. And may the Lord help us not to make comparisons. Well, if you were just more like your sister, or if you would get as good a grades as your brother. You know, don't do that. Build on their strengths. Respect each one for his or her individual qualities. And then uh, number nine. Thou shalt use discipline. I'm not necessarily referring to punishment there. Applying the Board of Education to the seat of learning is not necessarily the best method to use in every case. Discipline means giving guidance, setting limits, defining boundaries, praising successes. Discipline is a process by which parents assume responsibility for a child's behavior and then gradually teach them to take responsibility for themselves until the day arrives when they are independent and understand the principles of self-discipline. That's the goal. Let me say it again. Discipline is the process by which parents take responsibility for the child's behavior and then gradually teach them to take responsibility for themselves until the day arrives when they are independent and understand the principles of self-discipline. And then number 10, thou shalt know when to let go. 
one to untie the apron strings. It's important not to do it too soon. And it's important not to do it too late. It's usually harder for parents than it is for children to untie the apron strings. But it usually hurts both in the long run. But it's a good hurt. It's a necessary hurt. And we're all better off when the process is completed and they've achieved the goals that, that they're reach, reaching for. Somebody saw three stonemasons working on a building. and They asked each one of them, what are you doing? One of them said, I'm laying bricks. Another one said, I'm building a wall. And the third one said, I'm constructing a great cathedral. He had a different attitude about his work. And you know, if we ask this morning, what are you doing in your family? Somebody might say, I'm supporting a family. Somebody might say, I'm rearing children. And somebody else might say, I'm mentoring young men and women who are going to grow up to be responsible citizens who love God and love others. That's our goal. So we're talking about a father's position, a father's purpose, and uh, here's the father's promise, also in verse 19, <clears throat> so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What did God promise Abraham? Remember? He promised him he would be great, and he would be a powerful nation, and the whole world would be blessed through him. Well, what's God's promise to us? Well, there are many, many, hundreds of promises in the scripture. But I'm thinking of one in reference to family life. Psalm 127 and 128, we won't take time to read it all this morning, but it'd be a good assignment if you want to go home and read it, because they are kind of joined together as uh, relating to family. But here's part of what it says in Psalm 128. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. We just had two sons, but we remember the days when they sat around our table and grew like olive shoots. And uh, But we're talking about a family, which God is central. Children are viewed as gifts from the Lord. They're fruit provided by Him. And uh, we survived that whole range of Little kids, teenagers, going off to college, adulthood, becoming parents themselves. And one of our sons is now a grandfather, so you know what that makes us. We are great grandparents. We've lived long enough to see some of God's promises fulfilled as our grandchildren are following the Lord. So we're thankful that God fulfills His promises. And then... Finally, I see a father's passion. <clears throat> Abraham was a man of deep emotions, a man who cared. Back in Genesis, I didn't read this part, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so, if you follow up that passage where God says he's going to see what that, what's going on, Abraham begins to talk to the Lord and reason with the Lord and inter intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew lived there, Lot lived there with his family. And uh, Abraham was concerned. And he began to bargain with the Lord. If there's 50 righteous, will you preserve the 
cities and not destroy them? Well, how about 40? How about 30? came down to 10. Unfortunately, there weren't even 10 righteous people there in the cities. But you know, it, it shows us that Abraham had uh, a warmth in his heart, a passion, uh, a compassion, caring for others. And God wants us to be men and women of passion, deep inner feelings that can be touched with the needs of our family and the world around us. People of warmth and understanding. So, What's our position? To be close to God. What's our purpose? To lead our family in the ways of God. What's our promise? That God will bless us if we follow Him. And our passion? To be people of deep feelings who are led by love. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture in which You show us Abraham, a man who honored You, followed You, loved You, was led by You and a man through whom you worked. Lord, I trust we'll be that, that kind of person. That you'll help us to be people who honor you, and love you, and follow you, obey you, and do our best to be instruments of righteousness, channels through whom you can work. Lord, may it be true in our families and our communities that, that we walk with you in such a way that you accomplish good and great things through us. In Jesus' name, amen.